streamlined design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. Our guest today is Vince Sullivan, Senior Bankruptcy Reporter for Law360, where he has been reporting on insolvency and restructuring since 2016. Vince, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. So, Vince, you reporting on insolvency and restructuring, I thought it made sense for us to talk about the absurdity that was the bankruptcy case of the National Rifle Association, a bankruptcy case that involved neither insolvency nor restructuring. But here's the thing. You're from Delaware County, Pennsylvania, suburb of Philadelphia. I live in Delaware County, too. So instead of talking about the NRA, we should just do what everyone else in Delco is doing. We're going to spend the hour talking about the hit HBO series, Mayor of Easttown. What do you think? Absolutely. Have you been trying to pick out the filming locations like I have every time you see a building in the background? I, I have never actually seen the show, which I ah. admit is going to make for a challenging, challenging episode. I, I would agree that I, I'm coming at it from an advantageous position. All right. Well, we, we stick to the plan then. We're going to talk about the NRA's bankruptcy. Before the bankruptcy, the NRA had some, some other issues. Um, officers departed under a cloud of financial wrongdoing. There were allegations of the NRA using funds for executives' personal expenses. Vince, how did the NRA get to where we start this story with bankruptcy? So, I mean, we can go back 150 years to when the NRA was founded by veterans of the Civil War in New York City. Um, and that's really how they got to where they are today, by choosing New York uh, as a place of incorporation. Over the decades, the politics changed to the point where there's a hostile uh, kind of political environment in New York State with the uh, New York Attorney General really, really going after the NRA, conducting investigations, and then culminating in August of last year with a lawsuit seeking to dissolve the entire organization. And, and, and in addition to dissolving, um, the, the, the New York Attorney General was also seeking quite a lot of money being returned to the NRA from some vendors and some executives. Uh, one of the, the executives being the executive vice president and chief executive officer, Wayne LaPierre, who is very much the face of the, of the NRA. Right. And in addition to being the public face of the organization, he's kind of the keystone of the whole operation. Um, during the bankruptcy proceeding, we heard lots of testimony that the organization operates on the Wayne said, you know, uh, rules right. where there was, really kind of a lack of corporate governance is what a lot of the testimony was about and kind of day-to-day -day decisions were made on a whim, so to speak, by uh, Mr. LaPierre with what he said went. And that's how it was, uh, despite the massive uh, board of directors, 76-member uh, board of directors who were often kept in the dark about a lot of the things that were going on. Right. And, and so in the, in the three years or so before the bankruptcy, actually in the year before the bankruptcy, 2019, um, the NRA made the news because of, uh, of financial controversies. Um, the, the president of the organization, Oliver North, that Oliver North, the Iran-Contra Oliver North, um, departed the organization pretty, pretty suddenly uh, on the eve of, of his, I guess, renomination or re-election to a second term as president. And, and there was a lot of back and forth between Wayne LaPierre and Oliver North during that period of time 
um, Wayne LaPierre read a letter to the board, uh, allegedly by Oliver North, saying that he would not seek a second term as president of the organization, which which North later said was not his choice. Um, North called for an independent investigation of of Wayne LaPierre and called for an independent investigation into the organization's finances and the billing practices of the NRA's law firm, Brewer Attorneys and Counselors. All of this in the back, under the background of the New York Attorney General investigation, a lawsuit filed against NRA by its former ad agency and public relations firm, Ackerman McQueen, in which, uh, and, and the NRA countersued McQueen, alleging that they, they wouldn't turn over to the NRA some documents that they had given to the New York Attorney General, and that they disagreed with about $1.3 million of, of invoices from McQueen. And a lot came out in this. Um, there were allegations that expenses were run through McQueen that were destined to benefit individuals in NRA's management, which, you know, if you're if you're paying your your PR firm, that's one thing. If you're putting a, a down payment on a house for your CEO, that's something very different. And and one hides it from oversight and the other doesn't. So so those allegations were pretty big and they really fed into um, New York Attorney General Letitia James investigation and and which turned into her lawsuit that basically said that they had ceased operating within the bounds of a of how a legal nonprofit organization operates um, wanted damages and and dissolution as you said and 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 kind of hung all this on this idea that about sixty four million dollars had gone poof in about three years Absolutely. And it's a significant amount of money. Uh, and if you've followed the case at all, you've probably heard a lot about designer suits uh, being tailored out of Beverly Hills for uh, Wayne LaPierre, uh, trips on yachts owned by wealthy donors of the NRA, uh, vacations to Bermuda, uh, things of that nature. And I think that's what underpinned a lot of the New York Attorney General's suit. And a lot of that came out from kind of the dissection um, that occurred in the NRA leadership when, when Oliver North, and yes, it is that Colonel Oliver North, if I recall, uh, that was kind of, I think he lasted less than a year, uh, like you said, uh, and there were whistleblower complaints in his letters and uh, made all of this kind of rise to the top uh, at a time when there were already challenges to the NRAs, really their legitimacy. Uh, Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, while she was campaigning for that position, you know, called the NRA a criminal enterprise and a terrorist organization. So right. that's the environment in which the NRA was living uh, before they they sought bankruptcy protection. And 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 this isn't we we haven't even gotten to what the NRA does. Like this this isn't a political question. This is are they operating according to corporate governance and state law, which is what kind of directs companies on how they have to act. We we haven't even gotten to what they're doing with their money other than apparently buying suits and funding vacations and other things like that. Um so you don't even get to the political question yet. The political question throws a whole new dynamic into this, which fortunately I don't know that we need to wade all that deeply into. Um in in the backdrop of this. There's also the litigation between Ackerman McQueen, the, which was the NRA's ad agency for more than 40 years, and the NRA, its longtime client. Um, and, and Ackerman McQueen is, is sort of an odd duck in all of this for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is that they're based in Oklahoma, which, you know, you don't need to watch all the seasons of Mad Men to know that when somebody thinks top-notch ad agency, they are not thinking 
Tulsa. Um, but they had this relationship that had been built over years from the founders of the firm. And, and the result of the closeness was that Ackerman McQueen was really wrapped up in, in NRA's financial operations and they got, they got sucked into some of these financial misdeeds. So, you know, how does that factor into this? Sure. It's uh kind of what I refer to as the friends and family plan, where they just have been so intertwined for decades that, uh, you know, the leadership of both organizations were very friendly. Uh, they, they depended on each other for, you know, their own operations. Uh, and like you said, it's a PR firm kind of in the middle of the country for an organization that's incorporated in New York, but operates in Virginia as members all over the country. Uh, and it was certainly a uh, relationship that was wrought with lots of intertwined relationships, personal relationships. And when that came apart uh, in the last couple of years, it led to a lot of uh, animosity. And as you saw litigation with, you know, claims for a hundred million dollars in damages uh, for, for defamation, for what the NRA said about Ackerman, uh, Ackerman, was accused of not providing documentation for overcharging for products that were unsuccessful like NRA TV. Uh, and it really just broke down from there. And I think contributed significantly to, to what we saw uh, earlier this year. Right. And, and the result of this of course was litigation, which is public by nature, which means you are, you are airing your dirty laundry for the world to see and the world saw it. And so the, the NRA files a multiple lawsuits against Ackerman McQueen. They claim that the agency refused to provide documents that, that came up in the New York attorney general's investigation of the NRA. They claim that Anderson McQueen had attempted to seize control of the NRA by getting CEO Wayne LaPierre to resign under threats of a smear campaign. Now, now that, that's, that's an oddly specific charge. And, and if you're going to make that sort of claim, I think you have to be able to prove it. Um, but, but again, isn't filing that lawsuit doing all the smearing that, that the other that your adversary has alleged you you've alleged they're going to do as a PR firm. I I think they would have a a firm grasp on uh, what their words, uh, what the impact of their legal words would be. And that's uh, only something that could be done by somebody who knows everything there is to know about you and your operation. And I, I, I guess it could have been read as, as a threat, uh, personally to Wayne LaPierre and to the NRA itself. And I think we saw that play out in, in how the bankruptcy uh, proceeded, where you had Ackerman McQueen trying to get the case thrown out of bankruptcy court, and ultimately they were successful. Had they not been, they were also asking for a court-appointed uh, court trustee right. to take over the operations of the NRA, which would have achieved the result that uh, you, were, you were referring to. Yeah. And, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. Um, so, so hopping back to the New York litigation, the, the big claims in the New York litigation that were later explored ad infinitum in the bankruptcy case, frankly, were that, um, that the organization explored purchasing a $6 million mansion in a gated community in Dallas for Wayne LaPierre's use. And that they wanted to funnel the down payment through Ackerman McQueen in order to protect Mr. P- Mr. LaPierre's personal security by not revealing his address, which oh, yeah, sorry. I, I imagine there are a lot of ways to do that short of funneling the dollars through your ad agency. A lot of the NRA's uh, counter arguments 
uh, in these lawsuits have to do with personal security for Mr. Yeah. Lapierre and his family, which I, you know, I, I'm not a security expert, but I imagine he's uh, a pretty big target for animosity uh, in the political climate in which he operates. Uh, private flights were a big sticking point, the cost of those and how they were paid for, uh, the invoicing and how that was used to kind of uh, not necessarily cover up, but kind of fuzz the, the uh, accounting of how things were paid for. Again, we go back to the suits that were actually invoiced through Ackerman. And right. uh, the justification there was for public appearances and, and television appearances, which, you know, hey, I, I, I noticed my shirt's bleeding a little bit, so I probably could have used a, <laughs> a personal wardrobe advisor before I came on your show today um, on the live cast here. Uh, so, yeah, there was a lot of discussion on how to pay for things, how they were paid for, and it brought to light this kind of lack of internal controls, right. uh, which led to really a lot of this, a lot of this uh, animosity. And, and almost comically, uh, Anderson McQueen apparently balked at, at the idea of, fu- of pre, pre-funding the down payment for a $6 million mansion in a gated community when, when Wayne LaPierre's wife filed an application to join a local country club and included the address which kind of does away with any idea of personal security. So, you know, note to self, if you're widely reviled, um, don't, don't put your, use a PO box when you go to apply for the local country club. Yes. Uh, I don't know if mailboxes, et cetera, is one of your sponsors here, but you know, that's certainly <laughs> well, and, and, and personal security needs are not um, putting, putting the, the chief executive's niece up in a, in the four seasons hotel on the company tab for eight nights to a tune of $12,000 raised some eyebrows. Sure. And that, I mean, it's just a, a laundry list of ill-advised spending that, that led us to, to all of this. And certainly there is that political element, but when it comes down to the dollars and cents, a lot of people had a lot of questions about where uh, the money was going. And a lot of those questions came from the members. The NRA is 5 million members that pay dues uh, they have a lot more people that donate uh, yearly. And part of the litigation was a, a proposed class action from an NRA member in the uh, Middle District of Tennessee that was, hey, we've read all these other lawsuits. This is our money. You told us it was going to be used for Second Amendment protection activities. And then we find out, you know, the private flights, potentially, uh, you know, the, the gated mansion, uh, the hotel stays. The suits, the the cruises, the vacations, and uh, a lot of people had a lot of questions, and they yeah. went to court to get answers. One of the things that popped up was um, there was the unreported use of a hundred eighteen million dollar yacht owned by an NRA contractor, and uh, and under under oath, Wayne Lapierre testified that the yacht was, and I'm quoting here. The one place I could feel safe, where I remember getting there going, thank God I'm safe, nobody can get me here. That's how it happened. That's why I used it. Which, okay, um, I, I think the the riest response to that was from gun control activist Shannon Watts, who quipped, well, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good friend with a yacht. Um, it just, you know, whether, it, putting aside the fact that it's a questionable use of membership money, it's just terrible optics. And, and, and the one thing that really sets the stage for the NRA bankruptcy that we're going to get to now is that they seemed to be devoid of any sense of, of how things looked. 
they were certainly operating kind of a, a, a bubble, and maybe that had to do with the deteriorating relationship with their public relations firm, who might have been yeah. able to head some of this <laughs> off. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of a um, a bit tone deaf. Um, I'm not privy to the actual, you know, uh, security situation with Mr. Lapierre. I don't know if he's really sustaining, you know, threats to his life and safety and that of his family that, that maybe he did was the only place in the middle of the ocean he could feel safe. But uh, it certainly, certainly doesn't look good. And then to seek protection in the court uh, of insolvency uh, really adds a little bit of fuel to that, that fire. Yeah. Well, we're talking with Law 360's senior bankruptcy reporter, Vince Sullivan, about the NRA bankruptcy follies. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. And if you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments. So on January 15th, 2021, the NRA files a Chapter 11 case in the Northern District of Texas in Dallas. They, on their, fi- on their petition, they estimated between $1 and $500 million in assets and liabilities, 200 to 999 creditors, which is a wide range, but that's what's on the form. But they said that all the creditors would be paid in full. And contemporaneously with the filing of their bankruptcy petition, they issue a press release. And the press release really kind of becomes the case. Vince, you want to talk about the press release? So this press release was kind of, uh, is putting it mildly. They, the NRA launched a new website, uh, nraforward.org, uh, which is still up. I looked at it earlier today. Um, and basically, it was populated with a lot of uh, public statements, uh, many attributed to, to Wayne LaPierre, that laid out the case for the bankruptcy uh, poorly, as, as we came to, to uh, discover after the bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, basically, it said, we want to leave New York. This is an untenable situation. It's, a, it's a, a, an atrocious political climate for us to operate in. We're going to reincorporate in Texas but we're fine. We have more money than we've ever had. Uh, we're in the best financial shape we've been in in years. All of our creditors are going to get paid in full. We have very, very little secured debt. Most of it's uh, owed to vendors, and that's gonna, not going to be a problem. Totally day-to-day business, we're going to pay all those bills. And, 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 and the, the exact words they used were that they wanted to be free from the toxic political environment of New York. Yes, and that was uh, what formed the basis of much of the testimony from uh, NRA uh, executives and, and leadership was that just this is, this is not a happy place for us to be. We've been here for 150 years. Uh, the tides have turned politically uh, since the Civil War, obviously. Um, but, uh, yeah, they just said we, we can't be here anymore. Uh, they, they pointed to uh, a few years ago being warned that they were going to come under attack politically. Uh, they believe that those attacks were coming to fruition with, with the attorney general's lawsuit and that we need to get out of here for our own survival. We're not going to make it if we have to stay in New York. So the NRA is, is incorporated in New York. They have their principal place of business in Virginia. Other than Wayne LaPierre apparently living there, what's the deal with Dallas? Okay, this is a good one. This is a, a, an issue that comes up in bankruptcy a lot these days, and it's all about venue choice. So venue is obviously the place, the court, where you decide to file uh, your bankruptcy case. And there's a few ways to be eligible at any particular venue. One is to be incorporated there, uh, have your principal place of business or, or the bulk of your assets there. Uh, and the way that 
the NRA achieved venue, the right to file in Dallas, is in November of 2020, uh, it incorporated a new subsidiary called Seagirt, uh, S-E-A-G-I-R-T, which I just learned today through a little bit of research, is named after the town in New Jersey where it had one of its earliest uh, outdoor shooting ranges in the late 1800s, Seagirt, New Jersey. So they have Seagirt LLC now incorporated as a Texas entity. It has no operations, no employees, and it has $50,000 in a brand new bank account that had been transferred from NRA accounts uh, shortly after it was incorporated. So that gives the NRA an anchor to file their case in Texas. And it just so happens that Texas is the state where they would like to reincorporate themselves uh, through a bankruptcy case. Right. And, and did the, the board know that the NRA had created a subsidiary? That is a common theme that's probably going to come up in our conversation today about what the board didn't know. Um, from, from the testimony and the evidence that was presented at the bankruptcy trial, no. They, they were not informed. Many of the uh, executive leadership members of the NRA were not informed of this. Uh, Mr. LaPierre had in, you know, a long relationship with a, a law firm, the, the Brewer firm, who, who helped with a lot of this, these uh, proceedings and things of that nature. And a lot of those actions were just not communicated to the board, which is made up of 76 people. Uh, it's not like they were in want of somebody to tell. There were plenty of people they could have been. Sure, uh, sure. They opted not to. And, uh, you know, as we'll see, uh, didn't work out too great uh, with some of the other things they hid from the board. Well, and, and one of the things that came up in in what we're going to talk about in a moment, and certainly more so in the second half of the show, the $50,000 that the NRA used to seed Seagirt went back to the NRA. Yes, pretty rapidly. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I can't comment on the legality of, of those uh, machinations, but it, it certainly, again, is um, maybe perhaps if they still had that PR firm on retainer that they could have warned against such actions and how they look. It doesn't look great. <laughs> so, so the general reaction to this bankruptcy filing compounded, especially with the press release saying everything is fine. We're awesome. We have more money than we've ever had. We're doing great. We are only filing this to, to, to basically screw the, the attorney general of the state of New York out of, out of litigation. Um, the, the general reaction to this filing was first, I think what, and, and second, this can't, this has to be bad faith. Yes. I, I talked to a lot of folks, uh, a lot of bankruptcy experts in the, in the days after the bankruptcy filing, uh, the pretty much universal response was, you know, the statements that they've made are going to be a problem. Uh, it's a little fishy how, how they, got venue in Texas in the first place. Um, and one of the uh, questions a lot of bankruptcy and restructuring professionals I talked to had is, why did they file a bankruptcy to do what they want to do? They could just reincorporate in Texas uh, outside of the insolvency court and save themselves the trouble. But the, the good faith was the huge question right off the bat where, you know, you're not insolvent and you don't have to be insolvent to file for bankruptcy, but it helps. Right. <laughs> uh, in a manner but, of speaking, it helps. But, but your filing does have to serve a valid bankruptcy purpose. Correct. And, and, you know, there are certain things that you can use bankruptcy to do. Um, avoiding a regulatory scheme is not one of them. 
it's pretty much the one thing you absolutely never in a million years can can you know hook your bankruptcy filing on right. uh, the regulatory powers of of the government the state or federal government are co- explicitly carved out as as you know you can't even pause them so when we talk about the automatic stay that comes with the bankruptcy filing usually pauses all litigation that a debtor is involved in except for police or regulatory uh, powers of the government right so and they didn't even try and stop the the lawsuit. They they didn't argue that the automatic stay applied to it. Uh, I'm kind of at a loss for what the uh, what the strategy was going to be. Well, and and that also becomes a common theme in this bankruptcy case. Um, and and one of the areas where you see bankruptcies being dismissed because they're they're violating a regulatory scheme is in bankruptcies filed by by marijuana businesses, dispensaries, grow operations, because while they may be legal under state law, they're not legal under federal law. And the United States trustee, the bankruptcy watchdog of the Justice Department, just on a matter of public policy, will object and seek the dismissal of any pot business because it's violating federal law simply by existing. And and so you get this, you know, you, you, you get this overlay of cases that stand for the premise that a debtor can't use bankruptcy to continue violating the law or evading a regulatory scheme. Right. And even uh, the, the in the context of cannabis and, and, and marijuana grow operations, that has extended to uh, businesses that serve those businesses. Right. Uh, you know, uh, suppliers, landlords, even they can't seek uh, bankruptcy protection if a majority of their or a substantial amount of their revenue comes from uh, cannabis operations. So the, the trustee has staked a pretty uh, firm claim against those cases. Uh, and that kind of cropped up in this context as well. You cannot, as you said, continue to violate the law as as the reason for your bankruptcy filing. Right. And and. There's, there's going to be a part where their choice of venue actually comes back to, to bite them. And we're going to talk about that when we come back from the break. But right before we head out to break, let's talk about the, the, the one issue that, that really pops up here, which is they, they as much said that the whole purpose of this filing was to, to get out from under the, the, the eyes of the New York Attorney General. And as you pointed out, they could have just reincorporated in Texas, but that wouldn't have stopped the litigation. Correct. Uh, again, they can't. You can't just walk away from from getting sued. Uh, and there there may have been a wrinkle in trying to leave New York and go to Texas in the midst of this dissolution uh, litigation. Uh, it, that didn't really come down to that uh, discussion. But certainly, you can't just you know if you get pulled over for a speeding violation, you can't just say, well, I'm going to move to Tennessee tomorrow. So this all stops. I don't have to pay this. Well, I mean, I I suppose you can do that. If you do actually move to Tennessee and you never drive back into the state where you have the the warrant. That's very true. That's very true. And if you happen to get, you know, pulled over and you've got that warrant, you're probably taking a long unexpected trip back to whatever state gave you the ticket low those, those many days ago. So we're talking with Vince Sullivan, senior bankruptcy reporter at Law 360. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to us at comments at disrupted.business. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. 
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We are talking about the clown car of corporate governance that was the National Rifle Association's bankruptcy case earlier this year. With Vince Sullivan, Senior Bankruptcy Reporter from Law360. If you've got questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted, B-I-Z disrupted, or email them to comments at disrupted.business. And if you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments or just say hello. So Vince, before we headed out on the break, we were talking about uh, the NRA and their choice to file bankruptcy. But one of the things that seems to be a common theme that pops up at various key points in this story is that that... It, it doesn't seem like they, they knew entirely what they were getting into. And, and, and you spoke about bankruptcy venue, what allowed them to, to, to file in Dallas rather than Virginia or New York. One of, the, one of the reasons why a company will pick a venue to file in is because of the overriding case law that has developed within the circuit courts, uh, the, the circuit courts of appeals. And so here you've got kind of really three circuits. Uh, you've got this, the second circuit, which is New York, the third circuit, which is Delaware uh, and, and Pennsylvania, New Jersey. And then you've got the fifth circuit, which is Dallas. And one of the reasons why this becomes important is because different circuits have developed different standards 
for what will become very important in this case, which is whether or not a bankruptcy has been filed in good faith. So the NRA files its bankruptcy case, the New York Attorney General and Ackerman McQueen immediately file a, a file motions seeking to dismiss the case because it was filed in bad faith or in the alternative to appoint a, a chapter 11 trustee, a trustee who comes in, dispossesses the board of directors, takes over the management of the company. And, and, and that is a very extreme remedy. Those three circuits have different standards. They filed in, in Texas, which is the fifth circuit where the movement, the party that is having to prove uh, the, the party that's seeking to have the case dismissed has to prove lack of good faith. Um, in the third circuit, the debtor has to prove good faith. So the burden is on the debtor in the third circuit. It's on the movement, the party opposing the bankruptcy in the fifth circuit in the second circuit is a much higher standard. New York is a much higher standard than Texas. The movement must provide subjective and objective bad, bad faith. They have to show that the debtor filed both objectively and subjectively in bad faith. So if they were looking to protect the integrity of the filing and they thought that this was a, a, a questionable case, you know, the case might have trouble staying in bankruptcy, they would have probably been better off filing in New York because the attorney general would probably have had a, hard, a, a more difficult time meeting their burden. And it's certainly, you know, I'm, I'm not an attorney, so I can't comment on uh, what, what the, the, the validity of the strategy. But uh, if I had been a bankruptcy attorney, I, I might have looked at that a little bit deeper. Um, it, it comes down to, for me, to whether what the real goal of the bankruptcy was. Um, was it really just to relocate into Texas or like a lot of the activities that the NRA engages in? Was it a way to kind of garner a lot more support, uh, create a wedge, create a lightning rod uh, for, for dispute uh, and, and fundraise off of it? Um, certainly, New York might have been a, a, an easier venue to defend against this dismissal motion. Um, as we saw in Texas, which has a little bit of a lower bar for the, for the move-ins to bear, um, it did not work out for the NRA. Whether that uh, was something the NRA anticipated or not, I can't say, uh, but it did raise a lot of questions about, you know, the, the, how thought out the strategy was uh, right. in filing anywhere, but filing in, in Dallas particularly. So the court scheduled a 12-day trial on the, the various motions to dismiss or appoint a trustee or an examiner and a 12 day trial in bankruptcy court. I mean, it, it's not the OJ trial, but it's the OJ trial. It's a, re, a 12 day trial is a really long bankruptcy trial and you don't have a jury. So the judge is the trier of fact and the trier of law. So you're talking just to the judge PR sort of falls by the wayside you lack the the manipulation of jury sentiments that you find in a civil case or a criminal case, frankly. And it's just the parties making their arguments and doing cross-examination and examination of witnesses. And there was a lot of testimony in this 12-day trial. Yes, uh, it, it went on and on and on. Uh, it was spread out over a few weeks. Uh, it wasn't all con 12 consecutive days. And we heard a lot of testimony from a lot of people involved uh, with the NRA at the highest levels, uh, especially a couple of days of testimony from Wayne LaPierre himself. 
um, where, you know, he tried to defend the organization itself, um, which wasn't really at issue, uh, which led to a lot of static uh, between uh, Judge Harlan Hale and, and Wayne LaPierre. Uh, a few dozen times had to be, Mr. LaPierre had to be reminded just to answer the question that was asked. Um, like you said, it's kind of a different environment where, you know, if a witness could uh, embellish their answers or kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent for the benefit of a jury of his peers rather than, uh, you know, a, a longtime bankruptcy judge who's, who's well-versed in the law uh, and the law itself alone uh, in a case like this, uh, it didn't really work out in this case. Uh, it was not something that was uh, enjoyed by Judge Hale. Uh, a couple of times he called for recesses and, and encouraged Mr. LaPierre's attorneys to kind of uh, not quite coach him, but remind him of the, the proper procedures to answer right. questions on the stand. And Very frustrating. And, and if, you do, if you do any work as an expert witness, which I do, and, and I've taught people how to be expert witnesses, you know, one of the things you learn pretty quickly, and one of the things you learn if your lawyer is coaching you uh, and preparing you to be a witness is there's always going to be facts that aren't great for you. And there are kind of two ways to handle that. One is just acknowledge them and try and contextualize them and move forward. And the other is to try and evade talking about them. And, and if you do the latter one, you're not going to make any friends with the judge. Um, you, you, you know, your, your credibility is all you have, whether you're a fact witness or an expert witness. And so the best thing you can do is acknowledge the bad fact, contextualize it, and then move on. And that's not what happened here. Um, there, there was a lot of trying to evade having to answer to bad facts and, and it, it didn't, it, it became exhausting. Absolutely. It did. Um, when you're being questioned by an adversary, uh, it's tempting as a witness to try and suss out what direction they're trying to take the questioning and head it off. And I think that's what we saw a lot of. Instead of, as you said, trusting your attorney to come back on cross-examination and redirect it and contextualize it for the benefit of the court here in this situation, who is the finder of fact. And credibility is 100% uh, the most important thing for a witness. You'll see in opinions and orders after these contested uh, trials that the one thing the judge will focus on is sentence you'll read in every decision is I found this witness to or to not be credible. Right. And that's what every decision hinges on the testimony and whether it was credible. Well, speaking of testimony, um, Wayne LaPierre testified that he filed the bankruptcy petition without informing the board or the rest of the organization's management. So this raises a, a, an important point because generally speaking, you can't file a bankruptcy petition without authorization of the corporation. And that usually comes from the board. What he did have was he had the authority of a select committee, but they were, it, that was three managers. And the position that they all took was that his Pierre LaPierre's employment agreement, which had been renegotiated on the eve of the bankruptcy filing without having informed the board that they were renegotiating it for purposes of the bankruptcy filing included the authority to restructure the operations. In the terms of an employment agreement for a CEO, it strikes me that restructuring operations is more along the lines of, hey, let's open a West Coast office or let's close the Colorado field office, not restructuring the balance sheet by filing a bankruptcy petition. 
and I think you'll find some of the members of the NRA board would agree with that assessment. <laughs> uh, the 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 spearhead of that effort by NRA board members uh, was uh, a fellow named Philip Journey. He's a himself is a state court judge in Kansas. Uh, he was quoted in, in lots of media reports after the bankruptcy filing as saying he didn't know about it. His daughter uh, called him or sent him a text message and said, Dad, what the heck? And he was like, I agree. What the heck? Uh, this is not something I was aware of. There was a lot of uh, they played a lot of his deposition testimony. Uh, during the trial, where he indicated that at the special meeting where Mr. Lapierre's employment agreement was amended, uh, there the word bankruptcy was never spoken. There was no mention of it that that the amendments to it would have any impact on the need for corporate authority to file a bankruptcy. And every bankruptcy Chapter 11 petition that is filed in any court anywhere in the country comes with an attachment that shows we have the corporate authority to make this filing and their signature pages from whether it's the board of directors or the partners or, or whomever is the, uh, the governing body of, of a corporation. Um, yeah, they just kind of surreptitiously snuck it into a, to an employment agreement that was otherwise largely unchanged. Uh, didn't specifically mention that that was the purpose of that amendment. Uh, and then filed the bankruptcy, I think within 10 days of that special meeting. And we're going to come back and talk about this, but but summarizing Lapierre's testimony, um, he testified that NRA was in its was in its strongest financial position in years, and that the only reasons were the filing, were those that were in the press release, and that was because of the litigation with with New York State. So essentially, this was a two party dispute, and and despite the fact that that the NRA's counsel tried to walk that press release back at the first day hearing a few days after the bankruptcy petition was filed, meaning a few days after the press release went out, uh, there he is testifying that, yes, we're, we're doing it because New York is being mean to us, that there was no near-term existential threat, that, that the NRA had not been told that New York State intended to seek a receiver, so there, there was no existential threat to the organization, and that they never considered using bankruptcy to do what bankruptcy is meant to do, reduce costs, shed burdensome leases, modernize the organization's charter and structure. They, it never even occurred to them. And, and this gets back to letting, letting people make decisions about things that they don't understand. If they had simply said, we think it is an opportune time as we change our state of incorporation to streamline our operations to really examine what we need to, to, to get rid of in order to, to best utilize our members' funds and, and to use the bankruptcy process to make sure that we are as healthy as possible going into this next chapter of existence, that would have been a different conversation, wouldn't it? Yes, I think it would have been. Uh, you know, the NRA is very good at making broad, direct statements to, to energize their members, to, to draw support for their positions. And I think they got themselves in a little bit of trouble here by not thinking about the impact of those statements on their legal proceedings. And even during the case, as you said, on day one, their first appearance in court already started walking back those statements, only to bring them back up again when, when the case was on the line. Uh, and it's just something that um, you don't see footfalls, unforced errors like that a lot, especially um, in large Chapter 11 cases that have a lot of scrutiny on them. Right. Well, and, and in his testimony, what we had mentioned before, uh, Wayne LaPierre admitted that the board wasn't notified of the bankruptcy and therefore didn't authorize it. 
And, and the reason why the board wasn't notified was because he was concerned that if they told the board of directors that they were filing a bankruptcy, that that information would leak to the New York attorney general who would immediately sue to have a receiver appointed to prevent the filing. There's a, there's a number of problems here. The first is you don't trust your own board of directors. And, and the second is receivers don't get appointed over, you know, in an afternoon, you, you got to, I mean, they had a lawsuit, they'd have to file a motion they, they you know, it's, it's a process. Do, 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 pro, I mean, parties have due process rights under the constitution. You can't just appoint a receiver, you know, Thursday at two o'clock, you've got to file a motion. There's got to be notice. There's got to be a hearing. And they had the motion been filed in New York to appoint a receiver. They could have gone to the board and said, we have to file bankruptcy right now. And that would Absolutely. have been fine. Absolutely. And it is, it's just due process. It's, you know, aside from dissolution, I think a receivership is the most extreme relief that a regulator can seek, uh, especially against a not-for-profit. Um, and you're right, it's not something where the attorney general could have snapped her fingers and said, okay, I own you now, I'm in charge, I'm running the show. Uh, the NRA would have had the opportunity to, to prepare their own arguments, uh, go before the, the New York State Court and argue their position. Uh, wouldn't have happened immediately. And in that interim, if they felt that there was an existential threat, they certainly could have then uh, prepared a Chapter 11 filing. And we see them all the time where well, we would call them a free fall Chapter 11, where you know we have to file right now to protect ourselves and we'll figure the rest out later. But you know we came to find out that this was actually a months long uh, preparation for the bankruptcy filing. Well, certainly at least two months. That's when they Absolutely. created Seagirt. Sure thing. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of invoices made to their, their uh, attorneys for, for working on this case, a, a couple million dollars, if I recall, from the filings. And, uh, yeah, it just seems like um, a lot of just, you know, poorly planned uh, moves that, you know, if, if you wanted to design a case to fail, this is how I would have done it. It just, there were so many decision points where they, they could have stopped and, and save themselves from the, from the, you know, really just the headache is what it all turned out to be for them. Just a, a big bill and, and, a, and a big headache. Yeah. Um, if you've joined us late, we're talking with Law 360's senior bankruptcy reporter, Vince Sullivan, about the NRA's b brief flirtation with bankruptcy. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. And if you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments. Vince, one of the things that that played heavily in this and, and will affect what happens next were the choices that the parties put forward in their arguments relating to whether the NRA should be in bankruptcy. And, and everybody was shooting for the moon in terms of dismissal, but, but they also said, but if you're not going to dismiss bankruptcy court, we want you to appoint an examiner or a trustee. And, and those are, it's sort of a sliding scale of remedies. Um, and oddly, I, I think dismissal, is probably the most friendly remedy, at least for the NRA, with all of the troubles it's had, because it simply turns the it turns the key off in the ignition, and life goes back to where it was pre bankruptcy. What what's the you know what are the aspects of of having an examiner appointed and having a trustee appointed that that weighed into this process and that face the NRA should they uh, should they travel down this path again? Sure. So. Right off the bat, you know, that, like you said, it was that sliding scale. Some parties wanted dismissal outright. Others wanted a trustee or an examiner. A trustee, I would liken it to a receiver, comes in and they're just in charge. Uh, they take over the, the operations of the company. They supplant the board of directors and run the show. 
um, with which if you're an organization like the NRA is the, is, is a fate worse than death is having somebody in charge of your operation, your fundraising, uh, you know, especially, you know, the court would appoint the trustee and depending on how the wind's blowing, you know, you don't know what a, what a judge's inclinations might be for who's qualified um, and may not share the same values as the organization and may not be directing their uh, fundraising or, or political activities the same way. Uh, sliding down the scale a little bit, an examiner would have access to all the records and try and kind of figure out what's been going on. Uh, Philip Journey, the board, board member, was moving for an examiner, um, but he, in his testimony, said that Wayne, we, I don't want to get rid of Wayne LaPierre because nobody else in the world can do what he does with right. fundraising. Right. Um, but we've got to figure out what's going on with our you know, internal governance, our, our corporate controls, our financial controls, and our accounting practices, because something's rotten in Denmark. You know, it's just, it just was a, a, a hornet's nest of, you know, questions and thorny answers that, that uh, obviously we're not giving uh, satisfactory answers to, to the board members, certain of the board members. Right. And, and a trustee, to be clear, a trustee doesn't come in as management. They actually dispossess the board of directors. The board become, the board is, is disbanded and a trustee reports to the bankruptcy court and, and is the source of corporate governments, uh, governance, uh, management can stay. Often you'll see a lot of people fired Often Often you'll see new lawyers brought in and new advisors brought in, but, but a trustee is a, a very extreme remedy. Um, and so let's take a step back and talk about what the court found at the end of the day, the court dismissed the bankruptcy case. Um, and, and why don't you talk a little bit about what the court's observations were? Sure. So after a few days of consideration, once the testimony wrapped up, uh, judge Harlan came back with an order dismissing the case and, uh, you know, parsing words a little bit, he said that there was a, a lack of a good faith reason for filing the bankruptcy. Um, no valid bankruptcy purpose. Uh, basically boiled it down to, as you did earlier, to a two-party dispute uh, that could not benefit from the insolvency court. Uh, this was a, a dispute between the New York Attorney General and the NRA, uh, and it's just not a valid purpose to be in bankruptcy, and said that the NRA only filed the case to gain a litigation advantage, which is not allowed. Now they, so dismissing the case simply takes it, takes the universe back to the day before the bankruptcy, or I guess the minute before the bankruptcy was filed. They could still file another bankruptcy case if they wanted. Let's, you know, let's roll back the clock and get in the time machine. Knowing what they know now, they could file a bankruptcy case in New York in the second circuit, or they could open a bank account in White Plains, or they could open a, you know, bank account in Connecticut they could go to the second circuit where the case law is much more favorable to a debtor when fighting off a bad faith filing. They wouldn't have the problem of the, 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 the venue hook into Texas. They could still reincorporate in Texas if they're filing a bankruptcy in federal court in, in the second circuit. There's no prohibition on doing that. And they could say, we're going to, you know, we're going to get rid of some burdensome contracts and renegotiate our office lease and do the things that, that bankrupt debtors do to streamline operations and fix the balance sheet. And you don't even have to be insolvent to do it. They could do all of these things, except the bell has already been rung 
about their internal management practices, which means that, you know, within seconds of a bankruptcy filing, they're going to have motions to appoint a, a trustee and a receiver again. And there's already an evidentiary body built as to, uh, uh, to support those, the, those motions. Sure. Well, you know, even though it was a little frustrating sitting through a lot of the, the proceedings, the 12 days of testimony, the benefit of that is that Judge Hale created a fulsome record, the, the fullest record I've seen on a motion in a long time. Um, and in his order, uh, he, he dismissed the case without prejudice, meaning that the NRA can come back and seek bankruptcy protection again with a big caveat that there are serious questions about the internal governance of the NRA and the actions that were taken in advance of the first bankruptcy filing. Um, and those are going to be those questions are going to be answered forthwith in, in any new case. We're going to raise them and address them immediately. So the NRA, if they file again, are already going to be back on their heels defending the filing. So that's got a way into the calculus of whether they're going to, to file again. So during the testimony, there were two very, very different perspectives provided by two very, very different board members. Um, NRA board member Owen Mills mentioned that the board had failed to provide adequate supervision and direction to the executive staff, and, and consequently, the organization was out of control, the board was out of control, and the executives were out of control. And, and he pinned that on what he said was the board uh, continuing to consistently abdicate their responsibility. On the other hand, NRA board member William Lee, uh, who was first vice president of the board, said that there are times when he thought there was a little too much leadership on the board of directors. So it, it sounds like kind of what is at the heart of the New York attorney general case. Um, this board has a philosophical division among it. And, and this is just going to keep going as long as the, as, as long as it exists. Yeah. There's certainly some fundamental flaws in, in the governance. That word keeps coming up, the governance. It's basically just how the organization is run. And if we're looking at a lot of the allegations and all of these lawsuits and what came out in the testimony, there's certainly some weight to that. Uh, there's problems. There's a, uh, kind of a factionalization of the of the organization itself, and we saw that uh, when when Oliver North came on board, and immediately there was a split uh, between he and, and Wayne Lapierre, and yep. uh, it's just kind of worsened since then uh, to the casual observer. Well, Vince, unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the story that was the NRA's bankruptcy. Vince Sullivan is senior bankruptcy reporter for Law360. He's on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll post links to Law360 websites and social media on the show's website under today's episode notes. Join us next week for the start of our multi-part series on the business of politics. We'll be talking with candidates, advisors, leaders of political action committees, and party leaders about the fuel that makes our political engine go and how on earth a major political party can run out of money. And that answer has nothing to do with Russian hackers. I hope you join us for those conversations starting next time. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Carol Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.